Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Jonathan Chevro. John Chevro is a veteran financial columnist, blogger, and author based in Toronto. He was the Financial Post personal finance columnist between 1993 and 2012 and editor-in-chief for Money Sense magazine from 2012 to 2014. He still writes the retired money column for Money Sense today. In 2014, he launched the Financial Independence Hub, which usually publishes four blog posts every week. John has authored several books with traditional book publishers like McGraw-Hill and Key Porter books, including The Wealthy Boomer and a series of mutual fund guides called Smart Funds. In 2016, he co-authored Victory Lab Retirement, a Globe and Mail bestseller. In my interview with John, we discuss housing affordability, his 32-year-old daughter Helen saving in a first home savings account, general thoughts on financial independence, and what he's now doing in semi-retirement now that he's turned age 70. Without further ado, here's my interview with Jonathan Chevro. Hi, John. How are you doing today? Really good, Sean. Thanks for having me on. Perfect. Let's get started with our interesting discussion today on fin dependence as well as your daughter's journey to home ownership there. I remember you being on a segment of CBC on the money back in the day there a few years ago and with your daughter there discussing some financial topic. So it's great to revisit her, her situation there. So yes, the first thing I want to ask you about is just the challenge day of younger folks uh, buying a property around the housing affordability topics. So yeah, maybe you can just talk a bit about your 32-year-old daughter, Helen's journey to home ownership and, and also about the new first home savings account there. Because yeah, that's a great product that, that came out this year here. And I'm sure it helps that she has a financially savvy father like yourself there, John. So yeah, maybe you could just talk a bit about her journey to home ownership as well as the first home savings account and your research on the topic and your thoughts on it as well compared to like the home buyer plan and other ways like the TFSA for saving for the first house. Sure. I mean, first of all, as an only child, we sort of remind her that eventually we'll be gone and that this current house will be hers in any case. So that removes the pressure. Is it a challenge right now in places like Toronto and Vancouver to buy a first home? Yes, it is. Is it impossible? No, it's like anything else in personal finance. It's your priorities. I think I've educated Helen to the point that because she's been saving in a TFSA and maximizing it since she was 18 years old, so it's gotten, and she's invested pretty wisely. She insisted early on on stocks like Apple and other things, although lately I've trained her to have a little more balanced approach through asset allocation ETFs like VBAL, for example. So I said, that's all you really need is that's what you need. Or the comparable one, XBAL from iShares or ZBAL from BMO. They're all more or less the same thing. The point is, between the TFSA and then now the first home savings account, I guess my lesson is it's a lot better to receive interest than to pay it out. 
Now, once you commit to a house, which is a lot more expensive than the baby boomers ever had to pay, I mean, our entire house would have been a mortgage of less than $200,000. Now it would be closer to a million to carry the same thing. So we'd rather collect rent in effect or interest income than pay it out if it's at all avoidable. Is it at all? It's not always avoidable. Young people can have, you know, it's a lot easier if you have a partner, somebody who can, has a big job and pays half the mortgage. We're sort of waiting for that stage yet. Thanks for sharing the the journey of your daughter, Helen, there. I'm just curious. So could you share your thoughts on the first home savings account and like how it compares to like, for example, the home buyer plan and tax-free savings account? And also, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan. Maybe you can just explain like what type of investments can be held in the first home savings account as well, because Similar to tax-free savings account, I think there's going to be a lot of confusion around the name. Maybe a more appropriate name would have been for a, would have been the first home investment account. But yeah, just love to to hear your thoughts on the that new account for Canadians. Yeah, so the first home savings account, as you know, has only been out for about a year, and it allows you to invest eight thousand dollars a year into basically anything that an RSP or a TFSA would allow you to invest in. So not just fixed income. But you can invest in stocks, ETFs, asset allocation, ETFs, et cetera. And the 8,000, you get a deduction just like an RSP would. So if an RSP gets you $2,000 refund on an $8,000, it's like a deduction, same thing. FHSA will do the same thing. But the beauty of it is it's very flexible. Like a TFSA, you don't have to buy a home, a first home. But it's only good for people who have never bought a home yet thus far. So it's a one-time only deal. So it's a good deal. I would say it would be a priority. If whether or not you think you're going to buy a home, you certainly will want to retire at some point. And therefore, the FHSA is uh, does double duty. No, I agree completely. That's very well said. And the FHSA is also a lot more flexible than the home buyer plan. You can actually use both of them together. So if you have a lot of money in your RRSP, then you can use them in combination. But a couple cool things that alert is that with the RSP home buyers plan, there's actually the rule that basically any contributions that you make, it has to sit in the account for 90 days before you can take the money out. But with the FHSA, it doesn't have that same rule. You can essentially contribute money and then pretty much take it out in the next few days. You don't have to wait 90 days or anything like that. And another tip for the listeners that I find helpful is that you can actually transfer money from your RRSP to contribute to the FHSA. Now, you can't go over the $8,000 annual limit, but if you have a, a lot of money in your RRSP, then that's a good way to contribute to the FHSA. So those are just a couple examples of just how flexible it is. And yeah, it's a, definitely if I was starting to save towards buying a property, I'd start with the FHSA first. But if you have money in your RRSP, why not use both? That's what I would say. Yeah, all valid. And in our case, we have more in the TFSA, Helen's TFSA, than in the RSP. So we haven't even thought of rating the RSP to fund a home. To us, it would be the TFSA uh, and the FHSA. Uh, we'd rather build up the RSP than take, tear it down, which is what a withdrawal would mean. And you have to pay it back anyway. Of course, in our case, we're likely going to supplement with the parent's contribution to any down payment should it happen, which would be basically from our non-registered savings. So that's what we're planning. But right now, we're quite happy just with the status quo. As I say, there's no hurry. 
the real estate market could come down a bit. Interest rates seem to be close to topping out. You can tell me otherwise. And why not wait if you can get along as a family of three and the house is big enough for it? Now, we have considered alternatives like renovating, a renovation sort of thing where you would, I think Rob Carrack wrote a piece in The Globe a couple of months back, which made us think, and he was talking about basically turning a single family home, which is what we have with the back property, into a duplex. A duplex, yeah, with a separate entrance. That would allow the possibility of, let's say, Helen decides she wants to have a condo somewhere else after all. At that point, it would be a little awkward, but then you'd have to basically rent it out. And I don't think seniors who are in close to retirement really want to rent it out to a stranger. So for now, we're not going to go that route. We would prefer just to keep the status quo. At some point, I mean, ultimately, as you know, home equity can be used to Let's say you need to go to retirement home. You're going to have significant costs in the last 10 or 20 years of your life. The good thing about home equity and a paid-for home, because as you know, Sean, I've written in Independence Day that the foundation of financial independence is a paid-for home. Yes. But once it's paid for, there is home equity there. If you have to, in, in the last five years, pay for, I don't know, six or $7,000 a month for a nursing home or a retirement home, nice to have in the back of your pocket the home equity, which is a little less easy to tap if it's also being used by an adult, grown adult who's living there, or you're renting it out to somebody either way. So there's a lot of things you got to think about strategically when it comes to this decision. No, definitely. It, it's not a snap decision or, a, or anything. It's definitely some things you want to put some thought into and speak with all family members as well. And just quickly before we wrap up this topic here, I'm just curious with Helen, if she was to buy a property on her own, like what kind of strategy is she looking at in terms of home buying? Like I'm sure that she'd love to own a house. Maybe she would, or maybe she wouldn't. Depends on her lifestyle there, but imagine like she'd want to get a house similar to yours. It's not possible as a starter home. So like, what is she, if she was going to buy her own property, what is she looking at? Like condo, a bit further out or a house in like other parts of Ontario here? Like what kind of strategy would she take if she was actually to go ahead and buy a property on her own? Yeah. I mean, it seems like a condo would be an interesting possibility. And there our strategy would be like maybe down the road we would swap. So she would take the current single family home with a backyard and we would go into the condo. And so that would be a nice little swap. Might be a little tricky from who owns it and all on the tax wise. But in principle, that makes a lot of sense. And it's something we may decide to do. Townhouses is another possibility. We live down by the lake in Long Branch, part of Toronto. And it's lovely. We really enjoy the lake being so close. And so does Helen. So she'd probably want to buy something nearby. Unfortunately, it's no longer a secret. And it's getting pretty popular in terms of the price and, and housing availability. My view is there's no rush to get out there and buy at basically high interest rates and prices are also almost near record high and they've come down a little bit. My view is like, if there's a particular, a partner comes along who has a good job and you're going to basically share the mortgage, that's a whole different kettle of fish. But as long as one is, you're only responsible for one's own self, it's hard to, you know, her, her job, she does a real job and it's remote, so you can work right here. So I'm actually calling from a new office. I said, we had a renovation. That is, I had a nice fancy home office and I've gone down to a little office. You can't see it here because it's audio. So that 
uh, Helen can take the fancier one. So that's okay. That's the sacrifices baby boomer parents have to put up with from time to time. Well, you definitely sound like amazing father helping educate your daughter about finances and even giving her the nice office of the house. So I wish my parents were that nice. <laughs> They're great parents, but sounds like you're really helping her out there. Well, you have two siblings, so your parents have to split it. Yeah, they have to share the love. <laughs> I'm sure some listeners can relate there, but perfect. So why don't we switch gears for a minute here and talk about the second topic that we wanted to discuss, financial independence. So yeah, maybe you can talk about a bit about your I mean, you've talked uh, a bit about your current situation there. So maybe you can talk like you could certainly talk more about that as well as like other people that you've spoken to similar age and all that. Like when it comes to retirement and home ownership, like common challenge is being house rich and cash poor where it's nice to have like a million or a million and a half or $2 million house. But if all the money is in the house and you don't have a gold plated pension plan, you have a bit of a challenge there. Now, certainly you can downsize, but then there's the cost of moving and the land transfer tax and all that there. So yeah, maybe you can talk a bit about like somebody like your age there, uh, some of the, the challenges in that situation and your thoughts on that as well. Well, I don't have a gold plated pension. I would call it more like a bronze-plated one, <laughs> mostly from the National Post. I was there for 19 years. My wife is, has no pension at all, no employer pension, but she always maximized her RSP, and we all and obviously we eat our own cooking, so we maximize our TFSA since it began. And now, I mean, CPP, we look at it. We delayed CPP as long as we could. Didn't quite wait to 70, because actually I think Fred Verhees had an article in The Globe in the last couple of weeks talking about you're probably better off if you're about to take CPP to trigger it now so you get the inflation adjustment as of January. I think CPP went up by about 5% or thereabouts. Problem is CPP, right now, if you've been reading about the Alberta wanting, you know, possibly leaving the CPP, I think you have to act, and most financial planners say this, you should look at CPP and OAS, old age security, as sort of really nice additions, and it can be the foundation of your independence, especially if you don't have an employer pension plan, a defined benefit, inflation index, government guaranteed pension. But you can't always, you should act as if the worst happens. What if Alberta leaves? What if somehow they renege on the CPP promise? It would be devastating for most retirees. I don't think it's going to happen, but still, it doesn't hurt to have financial assets. So in the end, you're not going to be dependent on the government or any one employer. And employers can also renege on their pensions. That's happened in the past. One thing you can't count on is your personal investments, your RSPs, which turn into RIFs, your TFSAs, and non-registered savings. And then, of course, then you, if you're managing yourself, you have to worry about the fear of every retiree is they, they, they lose money, you know, they run out of money, or saved enough, but all of a sudden the stock market crashes. I think you have to seek protection in asset allocation. So I'm, I just turned 70. So we would have, I think my own financial advisor recommends 60% fixed income, 40% stocks. I guess we're close to that. And now we could talk about how the fixed income should be invested in. But right now, GICs, the Guaranteed Investment Certificates, are paying roughly 5%, maybe even a little more, depending where you go. If you stagger them over, so you ladder them, so they mature one, two, three, four, and five years from now, then you don't have to worry about the reinvestment risk. You just reinvest at whatever they come do. And ideally, they're also staggered yearly, so that maybe in spring and in the fall. 
That way you have flexibility because, you know, once you hit the end of the year, you turn 71, you have minimum forced RIF withdrawals, which are taxable. I haven't quite reached that. And remember that here's another tip. My wife is a year younger, Hell, Helen's mom, and therefore I can delay my age for starting a RIF to the end of the year I turn 72 based on Ruth being a year younger. No, that's a great tip, Bob. Thanks so much for sharing that with us, John. And I'm just curious, like definitely you're very financially savvy and it sounds like you've invested your money over the years just because you have the bronze-plated pension plan, as you said, not like a gold-plated one like people that work for the government do. But what if you were like a baby boomer and you found yourself in a situation where you didn't save all that money like like you did over the years and you basically have a paid off house, but you're kind of struggling to survive on CPP and old age security. What would you look at doing in that situation there, whether it's downsizing or reverse mortgages, or what would you suggest for people that find themselves in that situation there? Because yes, life can be expensive over the years. And if you don't make savings a priority, you can suddenly reach retirement and not have a, as big of a, a nest egg as, as you had wanted, especially like for people retiring now with this high level of inflation. I don't think people would have expected the inflation at this level when they were going to be retiring? Yeah. Well, again, I argue in my book, Independence Day, and even on Financial Independence Hub, independencehub.com, that the foundation of financial independence is a paid-for home. It's, it's a precious asset. Now, if a baby boomer bought it 20, 30 years ago, as most of us did, then you're looking at probably, if it's paid for, it only probably cost a few hundred thousand, and now you have an asset that's worth maybe one and a half million or even more, two million, if you're in Toronto or Vancouver. That's a precious asset. But I do have people in the situation you described, boomers who did not save, and they're only some of them don't even have real estate. So the problem for them is all they have is if they're renting, you know the old saying, with a mortgage, you're paying, it's better to pay a mortgage than to pay your landlord's mortgage. Because when you're renting, you're essentially paying your landlord's mortgage. What's the problem with renting? Well, A, it costs, what, 2500 to 3000 a month, even for one-bedroom apartment in Toronto now, yeah, right now? It's not cheap these days. It's very expensive. And I've got friends who and family in this situation. They didn't save a penny. They don't have a pension. In one case, they were saved by the fact that they got subsidized housing. So there are ways, If you can get, but it's a long list. If you're thinking of you need, you're going to need a subsidized housing, you should apply now. It could take two or three years to get on the top of the list. But once you do, you can get, I mean, what's the equivalent of a $3,000 a month apartment, and they just charge you 30% of your assets. So if all you have is CPP and OAS, then they'll just take 30% of that and charge you that much rent. That's a great deal if you can find it. We're trying to get a family member into that, and it's been a while now. Now, the other alternative, of course, is if you have some real estate, you can sell it, downsize, as you say, to a cheaper condo or move to the country, which is even hopefully cheaper still. I think that a lot of people experimented with that during the pandemic, which you could argue is still going on, and people working from home. But you got to live somewhere. So I, my choice is always get a home, pay for it. And then he had another friend of mine is in a situation where they only did one thing right. They did buy a house 20, 30 years ago. No other assets to speak of. But that person, and then the key there is, if you don't have any heirs, you have no children, and this person didn't, then that's the one case where I think a reverse mortgage or a HELOC might make sense. I wouldn't want to use a reverse mortgage because we wouldn't want to stiff our daughter. But if you don't have not in that situation, 
then you can basically have your cake and eat it too. I think somebody wrote a book called Have Your Home and Eat It Too. And I'm sure you can talk at length yourself, Sean, about reverse mortgages, pro and con. Most people I don't think should use them. But if you have no children and you have no other asset and you love your house and you need the cash flow, because it can be kind of tax efficient because you've already paid for the, you've already owned the home, which you paid for with after-tax dollars. So there are arguments. No, very well said. Thanks for sharing all your thoughts there. So John, you mentioned that you're only semi-retired and you just celebrated your 70th birthday there. What motivates you to still keep working? And I guess that kind of ties into your next book as well after Independence Day, the whole victory lap concept. So maybe you can just finish off our discussion here talking about that as well. Yeah, I guess I'm semi-retired. I mean, I don't have to be working, but I guess I kind of enjoy it. The Financial Independence Hub, independencehub.com, has been going on for 10 years now with content four or five times a week, 52 weeks a year. It's a bit of a burden, but I guess I feel that there's you know thousands of people who subscribe, people who knew me at the Post or Money Sense, and they sort of look to me uh, for a bit of guidance, like hopefully some of your readers may find this or some of your listeners may find this podcast of value. So it's not just about yourself. It's about the society of people who sort of listen. I mean, like yourself, I'm on Twitter now, X. I'm also on Threads. I saw you on Threads the other day and Mastodon and LinkedIn. So these are all ways to get the story out. Now, I'm 70. If independence is really all about financial independence, is it really about, I think, and some people call it fire, financial independence, retire early. I think people don't really want to retire. They think they want to retire. What they really want is they want to become self-employed. They want to be cultural entrepreneurs. They don't want to have a salaried job with a boss and meetings, like a big, long commute. People have been freed from that a little bit since the pandemic and with hybrid work. Full paid employment is not quite so onerous as it was for the baby boomers. But even so, if you can, it's nice to have no debts at all and yet have a side gig, a side hustle is what some people call it. So to me, if Independence Day is the day you no longer have to be a salaried employee, but you still want to continue life just because you have enough money to retire doesn't mean all of a sudden there's only a 14-hour day. There's still 24 hours a day to fill, and you want it to be meaningful. So I wrote a book called Victory Lap Retirement with a corporate banker, ex-corporate banker, Mike Drack. It's in a, in a couple of editions, including an, an American edition. And by the way, if Independence Day is also in U.S. editions. And so that just basically, once you get independence, what's next? What's next is victory lap retirement. You can think of it as an encore career. Think of it as semi-retirement. And it's basically having the best of both worlds. You've got enough money to enjoy life. I'll be traveling. Last November, we were in Spain for four weeks. I didn't stop me from running the Financial Independence Hub. Now we have six weeks planned in the worst of Canada's winter, which is mid-January to the end of February. We'll again leave Toronto in the winter, but I'll still be writing for Money Sense and editing and running the Financial Independence Hub. So that's my life for now. Wow, that sounds great. I mean, it definitely, I've heard that it helps to, to stay like active mind, active body, and you're only as old as you feel. So definitely like, I'm not, a, I'll be 70 eventually, but I mean, I definitely don't plan to, like, I plan to have a good work-life balance, but I don't plan to just like sit around and watch TV all day. I definitely think that you'll live like a happier and healthier life if you stay active like you have as well. So congratulations on your success and, and staying active there. And hopefully you have many more birthdays to celebrate after this. Well, thank you, Sean. And 
It's been fun, and I hope we can do this again on maybe the 200th episode. All right. Sounds good. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure speaking to you today. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host, I'm also an independent mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, coworkers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. Email me at Sean, that's S-E-A-N at burnyourmortgage.ca or call or text me at 647-867-3711 for a free mortgage consultation. Also, be sure to head on over to www.burnyourmortgage.ca and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you with all your mortgage needs. Once again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burning. <laughs>